Greetings, New Hope. It's great to be with you uh, this weekend. I'm excited about the series that you're journeying through, a new way of living, studying the, Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm actually excited to be giving a message on this text, Philippians chapter 3, because I feel like the Apostle Paul has a lot that he wants to communicate to the Philippians and also to us now through this text about how to live just like Jesus. The specific text I'm going to talk about is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get that out and flip and follow along so that you can read along with me. We're going to talk about all of chapter 3, but we're going to focus especially on this set of verses. The Apostle Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There's a particular line in there that has always stood out to me, a kind of shock value line where Paul says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And if you're paying attention throughout the letter, he is making it clear that he's talking about Christians. Can you believe that? Many Christians live their lives as enemies of the cross. This is so uncomfortable and sad for Paul that he has to even choke at those words with tears. And I don't know if you're like me, but as I read that, I wonder, am I an enemy of the cross? I think about when the disciples are gathered with Jesus in the upper room for the, for the Lord's Supper, and he says someone's going to betray him. And they look around, they say, is it me? And I wonder about that when I read this message about enemies of the cross of Christ. What is that all about? How could you have Christians who know who Jesus is and yet live as enemies of the cross? Well, we're going to spend a while today talking about that, talking about what that means, but I want to start off with an imaginative exercise. I'm going to take a parable from the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read the parable, but I'm going to add a little bit extra, something that I put in there that illustrates what it might mean to think about an enemy of the cross of Christ. So this is Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower and the seeds. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled on, and the wild birds devoured it. Other seed fell on rock, and when it came up, it withered because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and they grew up with it and choked it. But other seed fell on good soil and grew. Now that part you may have heard before, that part you know well. But here's a part that I'm adding that might illustrate these enemies of the cross. Some seed began to grow. The stalks looked healthy and strong. But when the farmer went to harvest the grain, he found that it was diseased inside and infected other stalks as well. You see, the kind of meaning, the kind of idea that Paul is trying to communicate is that there's more than one way of understanding Jesus, his mission, his death, and his new life. 
You might even say there's a wrong way of understanding who Jesus is and a right way of understanding who Jesus is. I don't know how you've been spending the last couple of months at home, maybe with your family, but we've been watching some old movies. I love introducing my kids to some of the movies that I enjoyed when I was young. One of my favorite movies actually is a great illustration of what's going on in Philippians chapter 3, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 1989. I hope I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but it's been a good you know, few decades. So, um, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the ending of the movie. In this movie where Indy is in search of the Holy Grail, you know, the cup of Christ, at the end of the movie, he's fighting with the Nazis. They both make it into the room where the grail is, and there's a guardian. The guardian tells him there's not just the one holy grail cup, but a whole bunch of different cups in there, and they have to find the true holy grail and then put some water in it and drink from it, and if they choose the right one, it'll give them eternal life, but if they choose the wrong one, they will die. So this Nazi is in the room, and he gets to choose first. And he's looking at all these cups, and he picks the most beautiful, ornate, elaborate cup. There's cups of silver and gold and all these beautiful uh, types of vessels. He picks the most ornate one, the most expensive one, and he says, this certainly is the cup of the King of Kings. And as you may know, if you've watched the movie, he takes a drink and he dies. And the guardian says he chose poorly. Then Indy's up. Now, I don't know Indiana Jones' faith background, but he had good intuition about what to choose. And he kind of spreads out, and he, and he, and he sets aside the most expensive, ornate ones, and he finds in the back the most simple, humble cup made of clay. You wouldn't even barely notice it. And he picks it up, and he says, the cup of a carpenter. And as you may know, he, he, drink, he puts water in it, he drinks from it, and it is the true cup of eternal life, the cup of Jesus. This is a great illustration because you can take that same life of Jesus, that same person, Jesus, and you can get two different readings. One reading is of a regal king and that he calls us to, to be wealthy, to be powerful, to be elite. And yet, as the guardian in that movie demonstrates, that's the wrong path. And then you have this other vision or view or perspective on Jesus where he's the humble Christ. And that one is the true one. We might say then there are two different ways of Christianity. True Christianity and what we might call shadow Christianity. You look at it, it's a mirror opposite. It looks right, it looks real, but it actually ends up militating against or being an enemy of what Jesus really stands for. Like the Christian writer who cheated his way onto the New York Times bestseller list and said he did it to glorify God. Or the church elder who had an affair with a married woman and told her not to tell anyone lest it ruin God's ministry through him. Or the preacher who asked his church to buy him an $86 million private jet so he could do more effective ministry. These are counterfeit versions of Christianity and not the real thing. Being led down the wrong path of faith, even in the name of Jesus, can happen all too easily. Several years back, I read the perfect illustration, I think, for Paul's point in Philippians chapter 3. 
There was a church in a city uh, called Davidson, North Carolina, 2013, that commissioned a statue of Jesus to be put in front of the church. This is a really unique statue. You may have even seen this in the news a handful of years back. The statue is actually of Jesus laying down on what looks kind of like a park bench in front of the church. And he's covered in a robe, head to toe, and he's laying down, so this robe is covering him, or, or maybe a blanket, and all you can see are, are his two feet sticking out, and the only way you could identify this as Jesus is because of the nail holes in the feet. And so, you know, if you're standing at a distance or the, the lighting isn't great, you might suspect that it's actually a homeless person laying on that bench. And as it would happen, a woman one day who was probably uh, from that city was driving by the church at dusk and she saw this homeless man, seemingly homeless man, laying on this park bench in front of a church and she pulled over and she called the police. She was worried about, about what was going on. And the police came and they investigated and they came and they, they came to her and they told her that this was a statue of Jesus. And she spoke to the news later on and she expressed how upset she was that this church had a, a statue of Jesus that made him seem homeless. And she criticized it. She said, we need someone who is capable of meeting our needs, a Jesus who is capable of meeting our needs, not someone who is also needy. She was offended by the image of the homeless Jesus. But the pastor, the priest of that church, told the news that many local parishioners actually find comfort in the statue of Jesus because this is a Jesus like them who knows difficulty, the Jesus that had no place to lay his head. Another local resident complained about this statue, saying that it might attract riffraff to his otherwise safe neighborhood. This raises that important question, who was Jesus and what was Jesus all about? Well, the big message that I want you to come away with today is Paul calls us to reject the mindset and lifestyle of enemies of the cross and rather instead alternatively to become friends of the cross. Now, just that statement friends of the cross might seem paradoxical, right? Because the cross, isn't that a bad thing? Isn't the cross something negative? Isn't it a, a execution or torture device? Yes, but it wasn't in the Christian imagination. It just wasn't just a place that Jesus happened to die. They came to see it as symbolic, not of Jesus's humiliation or necessarily of just his death, but of his faithfulness and love that he showed that he was willing to go through something really difficult and ugly and hard to express his obedience to God and his love for sinners. And so they were, these, these Christians were able to take this symbol and to transform it, to redeem this symbol, to Christianize this symbol. And this is, for example, why we wear the cross as art, like a necklace or maybe a tattoo. It's not just a memory of his death, but it's symbolic of his whole way of life, his sacrificial way of life in love for others. Today, we're going to celebrate communion or Eucharist, which is the breaking of the bread, the spilling of the blood. Again, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, remember not only what I've done, but imitate it as well. Become friends of the cross. Take the same path 
of walking towards that cross and, and living out that difficult obedience just as I did. Well, we've had a chance in several sermons to journey through Philippians from chapter 1, chapter 2, now chapter 3, and Paul is trying to talk about transforming the mind to change the way of life unto living like Jesus. So in chapter 1, Paul is talking about his imprisonment, the difficult circumstances, but how God is moving in that and how to change their perspective on his imprisonment. He's talking about their suffering. Maybe they were being persecuted by their neighbors, rejected by their family. And he's saying there's another way to look at what God's doing in your life. Chapter 2, Paul give, gives a series of examples of how to live out that transformed mindset in life. The biggest example is of Jesus, what I call the ode to Christ in the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 3, the letter takes a bit of a turn away from the imagery and language of joy towards bad examples or what I call shadow Christianity. He talks about watching out for evil workers, mutilators of the flesh, Christians that really don't understand Christ, believers that don't really have faith, worshipers that are actually idolaters. And it comes to a climax in that statement that we've been talking about. Some live their lives as enemies of the cross. They're malformed Christians. Instead, Paul is inviting believers to be friends of the cross, to adopt the mindset and lifestyle of the Jesus who did not despise the cross, but met that fate out of obedience to God and love for sinners. You might be on board with me that we are being called to reject being enemies of the cross and to instead become friends of the cross. You might be wondering, how do we do that? How do we become friends of the cross? Actually, Paul gives us a lot of clues and direction. And we're going to talk about three virtues or features of what it means to be friends of the cross. Some of these will be familiar because Paul has been talking about this throughout Philippians. The first one, in fact, is one that was really hit home already in chapter 2. So if you're writing these down or if you want to follow along, you could write down this first point. Friends of the cross value humility. You see, the enemies of the cross look to build a personal empire as a monument to their own glory, to their own status, power, prestige, and wealth. I think about the narrative from the Gospels where Jesus is being tested and tempted by Satan. So he's hungry, he's in the desert, for, for quite a long time, and the devil comes to him, and one of the big temptations offers, he takes him to the Temple Mount, to the highest part, and he looks out over the lands and sees all these cities and kingdoms, and the devil says, Jesus, all of these things, and their glory, and their prestige, and their power, and their wealth, can be yours if you bow down to me. And Jesus rejects that. He realizes that God's calling, God's power, God's wisdom is in the meek and the humble, and he can't acquire true power in that way. I've noticed that humility is something that's, that's, that, that we all understand, but it's really hard to define. But I think Paul does a pretty good job in chapter 2 when he talks about how to value humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in 
humility, consider others greater than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes into that song to Christ where he demonstrates his own humility. In the hymn to Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, you have this glorified Jesus pre-existing, right? Uh, he exists in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality of God something to be manipulated, exploited, held onto with a tight fist. But instead, he humbled himself, became human. And, and even more than that, it said he, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you have to understand, I think you do by now in this series, that crucifixion was the most humiliating, most shameful way to die in the Roman world in the time of Jesus and Paul. You see, the cross wasn't just a way of killing someone, right? You could behead someone if you want to kill them. They could be hanged. There are other ways to kill someone. The cross was a public spectacle. The, the busiest highways were chosen. And we think of Jesus by himself for three crosses, but you have to think of a whole highway of crosses. Dozens, maybe hundreds of people being crucified. And Jesus is just another, in the eyes of the world, just another person being crucified. And the point of it is you're you know, on a journey from one place to another and you have to look at these people being crucified. And it's a deterrent for turning against Rome in any way, for offending Rome. So the cross exists to eradicate basically your dignity and your, your personhood. And yet, in the ways that the Christians reimagined what the cross does, they said, yes, it has a destroying power. But maybe for the Christian, the destroying power is it destroys our pride. When we talk about being crucified with Christ, when we talk about participating, as Paul says, in Christ's suffering and death, the cross destroys our pompous prestige, our selfish popularity, and our ugly power. So humility, then, is a reevaluation of who we are. One of my favorite definitions of humility goes like this. Humility is getting out of the way to put someone else in the spotlight. The cross destroys our obsession with our own image so that we can get out of the way and put someone else in the spotlight. The cross, by its nature, ruins reputation, empties power. Now, Jesus redeems that, but he doesn't remove that function of the cross. It's just able to be commandeered and reused to destroy our pride so that we can get out of the way and put someone else in the spotlight. So, friends of the cross, number one, value humility. Value humility. Number two, friends of the cross look beyond the external to the heart. They look beyond the external to the heart. If you look at chapter 3 of Philippians, especially towards the beginning, Paul talks about his life before he knew Christ. He talks about how his life was heading towards the sort of perfect external religion. This religion that focused on status, that focused on prestige, that focused on pedigree. He talks about being a, a perfect Jew in many ways because he was circumcised at the right time. He had the right parents. He had the right education. He spoke the right language. He checked all the boxes. And he came to realize when he met Christ, he was dead wrong. 
It is mortals who look at the outside, but God looks inward. Probably Paul was even had in his mind at the time he was writing about that, a famous text from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16, 7, which says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Enemies of the cross, Paul says, have a earthly mindset. They only see the external. They only see with their physical eyes, just like that woman seeing a statue of a homeless person and finding it a threat to her community. Rather, we need to learn to see with what we, what we might call cross lenses, looking at the deeper truths beyond the external. I have a little riddle that I want to use to help illustrate this. I use this with my students sometimes, so I'll give you a second to think about the answer. What do King David, Harry Potter, Frodo Baggins, and Jesus have in common? All right, I'll say it again. What do King David, Harry Potter, Frodo Baggins, and Jesus have in common? Probably you're able to guess this. They're more than meets the eye. They're more than meets the eye. You look at a simple hobbit and you think, they're not a warrior, they're not significant, they don't really have much deeper value in the larger scheme of things. Or you look at a Harry Potter and you think, this is a nobody kid that lives under the stairs. You look at David when he was young and you think he's the youngest in his family, he's the runt of his family. And you look at Jesus and you say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They're all unlikely heroes. But there's a theological point. There's a, there's a Christian point to the matter, which is God can see beyond that external. He calls us to look beyond the external to see the heart of the matter, to see what's deeper within. Paul himself had to go through a transformation of his whole way of thinking about reality. He talks about how he was this headstrong Pharisee charging after purifying his people and part of that program was killing Christians, putting Christians in jail and killing Christians. And Jesus stops him and he blinds him. And that blindness is important because he came to realize he really couldn't see who God was without the Holy Spirit, without understanding who Jesus is. And he was given a whole new way of seeing, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And he talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, um, I used to see Jesus according to the flesh, meaning with fleshly eyes, with externalistic vision. And he said, but then I came to see Jesus differently. And, and, and as a result of that, I came to see all things differently. The cross forces us to look at a deeper reality beyond the external. I think about the situation with Jesus on the cross with a thief on one side and a thief on the other. And the Gospels bring out so well the different perspective of each thief looking at the same person from two angles. One thief looks at Jesus and basically says, go to hell. You deserve this shameful death just like I do. You're as bad as I am. You're a nobody, Jesus. And the other thief looks at Jesus and says, wow, you really are the son of God. Take me with you to paradise. 
How is it possible that both of these people are looking at the one Jesus and sees two completely different people? I think of the Old Testament, the famous uh, song of the suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 53, that actually previews how people are going to look at the Messiah, previews how they're going to look at Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, there'll come this great servant who will take on suffering, but he'll be misunderstood and he'll be rejected and he'll be despised. It even says he'll be someone so ugly, either physically or socially or whatever, but someone so ugly, people will turn their heads away. And what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter three is, are we able to see beyond the external to look at what's there on the inside? So the second point is friends of the cross look beyond the external to the heart. The third point is friends of the cross live by hope and not instant gratification. Friends of the cross live by hope and not instant gratification. There's a difficult truth that Paul has to offer to his readers. The gospel is good news, of course, but... The gospel is not all good news. Paul had to remind Christians of this over and over and over again. There's a bad element, a difficult, we might say better, a difficult element that comes with our Christian faith. Our faith will make us ugly in the world. Paul says that's just true. And he points to himself, that he's had to go through, much, through so much hardship and suffering as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as someone who had a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And even in, in the, the letter of the Philippians, he talks about being in chains. And, you know, I've done some study on what that would have been like. And, and from what we know about Roman prisons in the first century is you wore these chains that were so hard and so heavy, they would lead to gashes in your arms and often those would get infected. And so he had to live, Paul had to live with lots of pain and scars, physical pain, physical scars. And we also know he was beaten regularly. He was whipped. He was stoned. Uh, he had many nights of hunger and, and being deprived of food and drink. And in 2 Corinthians, he actually talks about the apostles as kind of the laughing stocks of the world. I'm going to quote here 2 Corinthians 4, 9. I'm going to quote from the Message Bible, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, because I feel like it captures so perfectly the, the emotion behind what Paul is saying. So I'm going to read here 2 Corinthians 4, 9. Paul writes, It seems to me that God has put us, apostles, God has put us, who bear his message on stage in a theater in which no one wants to buy a ticket, where something everyone stands around and stares at, like an accident on the street. We're the Messiah's misfits. Oh, that's hard to listen to. Paul says we're the Messiah's misfits. That's bad news. But there's good news, and Paul shares that with the Philippians. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, he says, We're waiting this Savior who will rescue us and redeem us. We have a hope of transformation, redemption, and vindication. He says, All will be made well. 
just like Jesus himself was lifted up after his humiliation, according to Philippians chapter 2, so we have this rescuer, this redeemer, this savior, who, and we will join his resurrection party. The rejection from the world is not the last word. Paul's insistent that enemies of the cross live for instant gratification. Look at verse 19, and I'm just kind of riffing on this. The glutton wants food now. The drunkard wants a drink now. The greedy want a quick buck. The YouTube star wants new followers today. Their God is their belly, and their belly, when Paul's talking about their belly, he's talking about what they believe the time was the seat of primal appetites, kind of the instinct to go to the pantry and eat junk food. That's that instant gratification, that desire, you know, on a Southwest flight to be the first in line, right? That, that, that's that instant gratification. Rather, friends of the cross take the long view. The long view is that as Christians, we give up worldly credit, worldly status, worldly power. We basically empty our pockets for Jesus. We lose all things. And you might wonder then, what do we get? What do we get in return? I think about from the Gospels, the famous story of the parable of the pearl of great price. You know this story, a man knows that there's this valuable, priceless treasure buried in a field, and in order to obtain that treasure, he has to sell everything. What a fool. Imagine that moment when he sold everything, but before he's bought the field. He has nothing. And in a way, that's our Christian life. Our Christian life leans into acquiring that treasure that's greater than what we've given up. And yet we don't have it fully in our possession. We definitely have things. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the, 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 the loving and caring presence of the church, right? We have the Jesus who walks with me and talks with me. But I also think that we're kind of like the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, right? The family's poor. They need to sell the cow, and Jack goes and he sells this cow, and he comes home with magic beans. And the mother, irate that he wasted the family's possession, throws out the beans. And we're left to wonder, is Jack foolish or wise to put all his hope in magic beans? Well, our hope is not in magic beans, and it's not in just a, a, a conversation with a stranger. Our hope is in the Jesus that we know now, that we have fellowship with, that we know through the church, that we know through scripture. So our hope is real, and yet we still lean into that, awaiting that Savior who's going to change all things. Well, to sum up, we've talked about that negative example in Philippians chapter 3, where some live their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. And I don't think they know it. I think Paul's implying they don't know. They're living at cross purposes with what Jesus is really all about. So we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be fully aware of what it means to be a friend of the cross, to value humility, to look beyond the external to the heart, and to live by hope and not instant gratifications, to not be belly worshipers, to worship our primal instant gratification appetites. Well, before we end, I want to get real because we've talked about theologically what Paul is trying to convey in chapter 3, but how does it actually hit home for us? I have a little exercise that I want you to try out. Um, so you could do it today or you can do it sometime this week. But I want you to write down 
five life goals you have for yourself. They could be related to work. They could be related to family. They could be related to, you know, hobby-ish kinds of things. But I want you to write down five of your life goals and kind of where you want to head with your life and what you want to accomplish. And then I want you to pass it through a Friends of the Cross test. So I'm going to give you some diagnostic questions. Hopefully we'll be able to send those out to you as well so you can write them down. So here are the questions. Do these goals focus on improving the life of others, the lives of others? Do these goals focus on improving the lives of others? So that would be the humility test. Do these goals focus on substance over image? Do the goals that you wrote down focus on substance over image? That's the beyond externalism test. And do these goals lean into kingdom hope? Or do they just make me feel good? And that's that uh, living hope over instant gratification test. I want to end with, I love to end with just a little bit of poetry or something that captures your emotions and imagination to leave you with something to sit with as you think more about what it means to become friends of the cross. I thought about one of my favorite hymns, As I Survey the Wondrous Cross. There's even a paradox there with the language of wondrous cross because the cross is this horrid, repulsive thing in the ancient world and wondrous is this beautiful, wonderful thing. So you see right there what seems like an oxymoron, but it leads us to think about how the cross is actually a beautiful symbol of Jesus' love. I wanna read just one stanza. I encourage you to read all of them at some point. You can Google it, but I'm just going to read one which I think captures well Paul's point here. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? I love the line talking about Jesus, you know, what Jesus looked like on the cross. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. And that's the paradox of being a Christian. It's not easy. The things that we do for our faith can be hard. So there's that sorrow. And yet when other people see the real Jesus, they're seeing the love. They're seeing the, the beauty in the person of Jesus on the cross because he's giving of his life for others. He's humble, right? He, he wants to serve others. We have to look deeper at who he is. And he lives in hope that God is going to vindicate him, which happens at the resurrection. I want to leave you with some final reflections as we wrap up the message today. I want to ask you, what is your relationship, your orientation to the cross? Are you an enemy of the cross? You know, kind of standing at a distance, judging Jesus worshiping vanity and pride? Are you a stranger to the cross? Maybe you want to be religious, but you keep your distance from getting too caught up in all the Jesus stuff. Are you a fan of the cross? You love the singing, you love the potlucks, you like the entertainment value. You maybe even appreciate what Christians have to offer the world, but you're non-committal. You just don't want to go the full distance of getting too involved with Jesus and his people. Or perhaps you're a friend of the cross, willing to be implicated in all the messiness of the cross of Christ in faith, hope, and love. Think about it. Let's pray. God, we, we grieve with St. Paul at the notion that there are Christians, and, and Paul says there's many of them, 
that live their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. They live in ways that go against the Jesus way. We would be broken to think that we are enemies of the cross. We'd be crushed to imagine that. So God, help open us open our eyes to those parts of our lives that work against what you want in the world. Help us to lean into humility, to see beyond the external to the deeper truths of who people are and what's going on in your world. Help us to live in hope. We don't have that full treasure that's buried. We know it's there. We know it's ours, but we don't have it. And we might itch for an instant gratification of, of, of taking that money that, that we have from selling all our possessions and buying something else quickly. Help us to, to hold off, to put our hope and trust in you. Help us to become truly friends of the cross and imitate you and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.